Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. With gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been making our way this year through First uh, Peter, and we'll continue and uh, make our way through Second Peter and be done uh, sometime uh, early September. And First Peter, as you remember, is a, a book that was written um, by Peter to churches throughout uh, Asia Minor who lived under the Roman Empire and were beginning to experience uh, persecution, what you might call low-level persecution, primarily verbal Uh, slander. Um, With that would eventually come uh, the kind of marginalization and ultimately outright physical persecution that that uh, many of us are aware of just from our you know brief studies of church history. And first Peter uh, my contention has been throughout this series is a book that is very much for our day and age now. This is uh, perhaps of all the books of the Bible of all the letters at least uh, written to churches this is the one uh, that, that I'm convinced not just we need as Grace Church, but Christ Church needs to, to study and to take to heart uh, in America and in the West. And this passage that we're looking at this morning is perhaps the defining passage within this defining book concerning what it means to live as a follower of Christ in our post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian world in a secular age. And the fact that secularism has filled the void of a post-Christian culture means that Christianity is increasingly being seen and will increasingly be seen as the problem, the reason for all that is wrong in the world. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week that featured the theologian and author Oz Guinness. He was reflecting on this reality, and he referred to this day and age in which we live, this season, this hour, if you will, this time, as our Augustinian moment. And the host of the podcast was like, what are you talking about? Unpack that for me. What does that mean? And so Guinness went on to reference Augustine's epic work, The City of God. Guinness pointed out that Augustine wrote at a time not unlike our time. In Augustine's case, Rome was collapsing and Christians were taking the blame. It was believed that Rome fell after it embraced Christianity because it had lost the protection of the gods. And over the course of some 1,000 pages, Augustine gave his vision of the city of God, a, a city or a society or a people created by the love of God and animated by love for God. And Augustine called on the inhabitants of that city, Christians, to embody a foretaste of the city of God to those who were enslaved to sin in the city of man, a city created 
by and animated by love of self. In other words, as Rome crumbled around them and Christians bore the blame, Augustine called on followers of Christ to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. Sound familiar? Rome is crumbling. By almost any measure, America is on the decline. Furthermore, the secular worldview whose vision of flourishing includes the unrestrained freedom to pursue whatever brings one pleasure is and will be increasingly found wanting. And so not surprisingly, by almost any measure, personal anxiety is on the rise, along with depression and substance abuse and suicide. Who will get blamed? Christians will get blamed. Post-Christian secular society lumps all Christians into a category of people for whom they believe there must be one day a reckoning. So perhaps Guinness is right. Perhaps this is our Augustinian moment. I think the message of 1 Peter is that that's good news. That gives us an opportunity to make something of the invisible kingdom of God visible as the light of God's kingdom shines all the more against the backdrop of the darkness of the city of man. So the question is, this morning, the question as we go through First Peter, the question is, how should we then live? What will characterize people living not for the city of man, but for the city of God? People who seek to use this short time that we have on this earth to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. I think Peter, in this passage, points to four things. First, he tells us that what will characterize people living to make the invisible kingdom of God visible is first, conduct that makes people uncomfortable. And second, words that cause offense. And third, a dignity that can't be denied. And then fourth, a hope that can't be explained. So conduct that makes people uncomfortable, words that cause offense, a dignity that can't be denied, and finally a hope that can't be explained. That's where we're headed. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before this portion of your word, we first and foremost are thankful that you have preserved it for us. Not just this passage, but this letter. Lord, a letter that was written to churches that were facing in their age something uh, akin to what we are beginning to face in ours. Lord, you, by your grace, enabled that church to be faithful. Would you help us to do the same? And so by the power of your spirit, through your word, would you teach us this morning? And Lord, more than anything, would you give us our heart's desire to know, to know Jesus, to draw closer to him, and to know him as Lord in our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, those who seek to make the kingdom of God visible will be known by their conduct that makes people uncomfortable. You see that in verses 13 and 14 and verses 16 and 17 of this passage. So let's take a look. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then jump down to verse 16. 
having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 12, we talked about the fact that there, when Peter was calling on Christians to live a, a good and honorable life, the word that he used there was, was more with the idea of living a beautiful life, a life that could be seen by their, their pagan neighbors as good. He's calling on us to do something different here. What he's calling us to do here is more in line with something that Peter said back in chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, Be holy as God is holy in all your conduct. That's what he's getting at in this passage that we're looking at right now. And what we see here is that holy conduct makes people uncomfortable. So uncomfortable, in fact, that they may attack you for it. He doesn't say if you're slandered. He says when. So Peter, here in this passage, not only reinforces that call to be holy as God is holy in all of our conduct from chapter 1, he actually here, I don't know if you've noticed it, he links it in a way to evangelism. You could call it pre-evangelism, if you will. Here's, here's a scenario in this passage. You're, you're living a distinctly Christian life at, at work or at school or or in your dorm room, or wherever it may be. You know, you are living a distinctly Christian life. You're being reviled for it. You're being slandered for it. The same thing was happening in Peter's day. In chapter 4, verse 34, uh, you read there. Actually, it's not 434, because there are no... Anyway, bottom line is in chapter 4, Peter's referring to the fact that they are being slandered because they no longer engage in the same kind of... Uh, sinful behavior that they engaged in prior to becoming Christians. So that was happening then. It happens now. So you're being slandered. You choose, rather than respond to reviling with reviling, to respond with blessing. That's back in chapter 3, verse 9. We looked at that last week. And eventually, the one who's reviling you, the one who's slandering you, or perhaps the one who's observing that happening to you, at some point, may ask, how is it that you can be so hopeful in the face of that? How is it that you can respond with blessing while you're being cursed? And then you have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that's in you. You have an opportunity to share the gospel. So it's like Peter is saying pre-evangelism occurs when your conduct is distinct from the world. And for years in America, for years at the church level, for years for many of us at the individual level, we have thought that pre-evangelism occurs when we can show how much our conduct is like the world. But we're really not all that different. It's really not that big of a leap to become a Christian. What Peter's saying is, no, it's as your conduct is seen to be uncomfortably distinct from the world that you begin to get an opportunity to talk about the hope that enables you to live that way. We fear man, and consequently, we don't live that way. That's our problem. We fear man, not God. Peter says in this passage, have no fear of them, this is verse 
14, have no fear of them nor be troubled. Now, in context, what he's talking about is that verbal reviling, and, and maybe if it should even lead to physical abuse, he's talking about that. I think we just need to bring it back and just talk about it in terms of fear of man. Have no fear of the loss of their approval. Have no fear of the fact that they're going to think you're a moron for believing what you believe. Have no fear of them, Peter says, but we do. We do. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, Peter said, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. We must fear God, not man. We must revere God. We must worship God. It must be our ambition to please God out of reverence for him, not fear, revere, or seek the approval of man. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, favorite verses, Acts chapter 9, verse 31, Luke writes, All throughout Judea and Samaria, the church grew, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, not as they sought the approval of man and did their best to really not look all that different. Holy conduct makes people uncomfortable. Now, keep in mind, the kind of holy conduct we're talking about is not that, you know, pharisaical, um, hypocritical conduct that so many of us jump to when we think about living a distinctly holy life in the world. Peter says here, having a good conscience in verse 16. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, we need to be walking the walk and talking the talk. Our walk needs to match our talk. We can't say that we have this hope in Christ and then live as though that hope doesn't exist. We do need to be walking the walk. Where does that good conscience then come from? It doesn't come from our ability to lay our head on our pillow at night and say, man, I did such a great job today being holy. I'm so proud of myself. I'm sure God is proud of me. I'm so thankful that I can congratulate myself for being so good. And I can't wait to be on display tomorrow as people surely look upon me and say, how is it that he is so darn good? No, that good conscience comes from a deep sense that you are a sinner saved by grace. That you are loved by God, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. From recognizing that you are now daily being graced with God's mercy and forgiveness, even as he patiently, slowly, but inevitably transforms you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Holy conduct that comes from that place, it makes people uncomfortable. It will lead to reviling. And it may lead to an opportunity to speak. And when you speak, you'll be speaking words that cause offense. So there's our second point. People who are seeking to make the invisible kingdom of God visible, who are seeking to live for the city of God and not as if we're still enslaved in the city of man, speak words that cause offense. Take a look at verse 15. 
I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're going to come back to verse 15 over the course of the next three points. So I'll just read 15 as a whole. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So let's just look at that phrase, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason. And then we'll come back to the hope that is within you and gentleness, respect in a minute. Well, Peter's, this is, this is the verse, right, that's often used to, uh, to, to promote the idea and the necessity for apologetics, for being able to, to make a defense for, the, for Christianity, to be able to engage with, with, with people at the, the philosophical level and, and, and give reasons, whatever the reasons may be, whatever perspective you're coming from in terms of your camp for apologetics, there's many. That's true, but that's not first and foremost what Peter is getting at in this passage. What Peter is very simply saying is you need to be ready to give an answer. It's really more literally what it means, more so than make a defense. To to give an answer, to give a response for the reason, for the hope that's in you. We're going to come back to that when we talk about that hope in in a minute here, but... But first of all, let's ask ourselves why we don't speak. And fear of man carries over into this as well. You know the gospel is offensive. You were probably offended by it at some point. Think about what we are saying when we tell people about Jesus. We're telling people that there is a God who exists, that he's coming to judge all those on the earth, but he became man in the person of Jesus Christ to take the punishment that you, this person you're talking to, and you as well, deserve on behalf of all who will acknowledge their need of him and then live their life for him. For those who have uh, ears that God has opened, that is the best news you could possibly hear. For everyone else, it is, as Peter said back in an earlier chapter, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And you are the bearer of that message. And so we don't speak. We're afraid of what people will think. Or if we do speak, especially in this day and age, we talked about this last week, we we speak about the things that are not of ultimate value. We'll fight over politics. We'll slam our opponents. We return reviling for reviling on social media. And maybe, just maybe, we we win the argument, but at what cost? Have our words further hardened people's hearts? Have we forgotten that Jesus saved his harshest words for the Pharisees inside the camp, not the sinners outside the camp. But what can we say? Because we are called to speak. What Peter envisions, again, is something personal, something that is unique to how God has been at work in you. Graham Tomlin, in his book, The Provocative Church, suggests that Christians be ready to answer two questions. I've tweaked these a little bit. Um, but, but here's how it goes. First of all, be ready to answer the question how and why you first became a Christian. Now, the how can be varied. 
People can take that journey to Christ in multiple ways. For you, it may be, I was raised in a Christian home. I never knew a day without Jesus as my Lord and Savior. For someone else, it may be, I came from a culture in which we worshiped other gods, and then someone came and spoke the truth of the gospel to me. For someone, it may be, you know what, I pursued a life of, of self-fulfillment, and it ended in you know, me flat on my face and recognizing I needed something other than what I could see, and God came and spoke to me. The path, the how can be different. The why is always the same. I recognize that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I put my trust in Jesus Christ and rested upon him for my salvation and him alone. But, but are you able to just give that answer? How and why you became a Christian? And then the second thing that Tomlin suggests is be ready to explain what is the best thing for you about being a Christian. And that can be as varied, as, as varied as the, as the varied grace of God that Peter talks about in chapter 4, that multifaceted grace of God. For you, it may be, you know what, I was raised um, without a father. And to be adopted into the family of God, that is such a blessing to me. It's, it's an aspect of that multifaceted diamond that is the grace of God. That's the, the part of the diamond that glimmers most brightly for you at this moment. Can you, can you talk about that to someone when they ask for the reason for the hope that's in you? But at some point, our words must include a summons, a call. God calls all people everywhere to repent, and he uses us to do so. So there must be a sense of urgency, because eternity is on the line. So yes, there, there is this opportunity for us to speak of the hope that is within us, but, but, but love for your neighbor would compel you, must compel you at some point with a sense of urgency to call that person to put their hope in God, to acknowledge their sin and receive his forgiveness before it's too late. Until God has given them ears to hear that is good news, it will not be good news. And they will be offended. But we are called to speak words that cause offense in love and with respect, and with gentleness, and that takes us to our next point. Those who seek to make the invisible kingdom of God visible demonstrate a dignity that can't be denied. Now, I am not talking about your dignity. I am talking about the dignity that you show to others. When Peter says here in verse 15, end of verse 15, do so with gentleness and respect, he is not saying, listen, here's a great evangelistic strategy. You know, kill him with kindness. Use the gospel bullet of gentleness on him. That will win you a hearing. That's not what he's saying. What is assumed here is a heart that is so convinced of the dignity of all people because all people are created in the image of God that the way in which you even speak to someone who is reviling you or slandering you is characterized by respect. By gentleness. That is especially important today, that Christians be seen as champions of human dignity. I was listening to uh, another podcast earlier this week that featured Nancy Guthrie. Nancy Guthrie is the author of many books, 
Most recently, I believe, her most recent book is titled Love Thy Body. She talked in that podcast about the secular notion of personhood as it relates to abortion. She pointed out that most bioethicists, secular, non-Christian bioethicists, agree that life begins at conception. That's not a debate. Yes, life begins at conception. The, the DNA is there, you know, genetically, biologically. There's no denying that everything that constitutes a human being, physically, in terms of matter, is there. But being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection because that fetus first has to earn the right to life by becoming a person. There's this distinction between being human and being a person, achieving personhood, some level of you know, cognitive ability or, or ability to self-reflect or whatever the case may be. Being a human is no longer enough for human rights. You must first demonstrate that you are a person. Now, it's not hard to imagine where that's going to lead when it comes to the aged or the infirm or those with special needs. There's, there's matter there. There's a, genetically, that is human, but it can be discarded because there's no evidence of personhood. Something similar was happening in the early days of the church. You know, Greek religion, Greek thought made this you know, distinction between body and soul. The body was, was evil. The body was corrupt. It was, it was not ultimate. What was ultimate was the, called the soul that existed within the body. And, and salvation was liberation of the soul from the body. There's something similar going on today. You know, it's, it's not quite there's the soul that needs to be liberated from the, from the body, but there is this higher sense of what constitutes a person that is greater than just the physical body. In the first century, Christians were distinguished by their love for people, though their bodies were failing or weak or unable to be sustained. And so the children that were put out on the scrap heap and left for dead, Christians would come along and pick them up and adopt them and care for them. The aged or those who were with, riddled with disease were left on the side of the road, not even cared for by their own families. Christians would come along and, and nurse them back to health or nurse them as they die. We're called to the same thing today. We must respond now as Christians did then by being committed to the dignity of every human person, including those who would persecute us. So that when we have an opportunity to speak words of hope to the person, you know, I, I envision, I think about Christians between 1 Peter and 2 Peter, because by the time 2 Peter is written and received, you know, the Neronian persecution is broken out and Christians are being killed. And so I picture this being applied by Christians after they've read it. And I picture persecutors beating Christians and Christians being patient and receiving that as Peter did, rejoicing that they're able to suffer for the name of Christ, as you read about in the book of Acts. And then that persecutor stopping and asking, how is it that you can have such hope as I beat you? And then 
not as an evangelistic strategy, but because even that Christian recognizes that person beating them is created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect, can speak with gentleness and with respect concerning the hope of the gospel. Christians will stand out as we do so. We will be reviled for it. But as we demonstrate a dignity that can't be denied, we'll stand out. Finally, Christians who are seeking to make the invisible kingdom of God visible will be marked by a hope that can't be explained. You see that again in verse 15. Let's take a look. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. There's some recognition for that person that you have a hope that they lack. Everyone hopes. Anxiety, despair, all those things arise because a feeling of hopelessness has overtaken a person. There's a sense in which hope is lost. Your non-Christian friend, neighbor, co-worker, family member hopes. The only question is, in what do they hope? I mentioned that anxiety is on the rise. 2018 surveys show that the, the largest spike occurred between 2017 and 2018, with 40% of Americans now saying they feel more anxious than they did the year before. There are increases across every category. Health, safety, finances, politics, and relationships. Increases in anxiety levels across all five of those categories. And I think I've mentioned this before, each generation is more anxious than the generation that preceded it. Despair and anxiety exist because hope is threatened or felt to be lost. There is a hope that characterizes the secular worldview. It is entirely earthbound. That neighbor or friend or coworker that you know has a hope. It is limited to this world. It spoils, it perishes, it fades, whether it's wealth or prestige or experience, there's never enough. And it ends with death. For a Christian, our hope is based on an inheritance that is eternal. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. It can't be lost. It's being kept for us. We're being kept for it. It is the hope of the resurrection because Jesus Christ is risen. It is the hope of a renewed earth because Jesus Christ will return to make all things new. It is the hope of glory, of sharing somehow in the glory of Christ. There is a future hope we enjoy as Christians. But it's also hope that is very much connected to the present. Because it is a future hope that is secured for us in Christ, it is therefore connected to the present. We see that indicated to us in this passage in verse 17. It's easy to miss. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If that should be God's will? See, what Peter's hinting at here is that even the suffering that we face now is not outside the control of a sovereign God. In his book, Evangelism as Exiles, just released last week, uh, Elliot Clark writes this, the Christian 
hope is that God's purposes are so unassailable that a great thunderstorm of events cannot drive them off course. Even when we're wave-tossed and lost at sea, Jesus remains captain of the ship and the commander of the storm. That highlights something very important. Christian hope is never superficial. We are wave-tossed. We are, at times, lost at sea. We do grieve as Christians. In fact, if anything, we grieve more deeply because we recognize that things are not the way they are supposed to be. We grieve right now with Peter and Chris. We grieve right now with James and Luba, who unexpectedly had their son and brother and brother-in-law die this past Friday. We grieve with them. And if it is that their hope is difficult to be seen right now, we hope for them. That we might hope with them in due time. We grieve as Christians, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Praise be to God. And when the opportunity comes... When people ask the question, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? We may respond with an opportunity to talk about the truth of Christianity. But more likely, our opportunity will be to demonstrate the beauty of Jesus Christ. What will characterize people who live faithfully in this, our Augustinian moment? Conduct that makes people uncomfortable, that may lead even to our death. But as Peter said, who's there to harm you? If you're zealous for what is good, your inheritance is kept for you. No one can snatch that away. What will characterize people who live faithfully in this moment? Words that cause offense, but by God's grace are heard and responded to with repentance and faith. What will characterize people who are seeking to make the invisible kingdom of God visible a dignity that cannot be denied because we are committed to the dignity and worth of every human being, even our enemies. And finally, a hope that cannot be explained because its horizon extends beyond that of this world. That is our calling. That's our calling. There's this beautiful passage in Acts where Luke writes that David served the Lord in his generation, and then he died. That's our calling, to be faithful in our generation. We don't know what the future holds. We know ultimately what the future holds. We don't know where direction things are going to go here on earth for our children's generation and their children's generation things. There may be a revival, an awakening in in America and in the West, or we may be headed toward the dark ages. Our job is to be faithful in our generation. How will we do so? Well, it's the part of verse 15 that I skipped over. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If Christ will be Lord of your life, he must be Lord of your heart. 
And if there's one thing that we need to take away from this, may it be that your burden and my burden is just to get closer to Jesus. You see, you look at this passage, you think about the cultural moment in which we live, you think about the, the, the thing that Peter's calling us to, these characteristics of, uh, and this calling to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. And that's not a, a four-step process that we can employ and get better at each day. We need Jesus. We need to get closer to Jesus. We need to spend time and slow down each day to be with Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, in this world, you will have many troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So let your takeaway from this morning be that this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow and each day after that, the one thing that you need more than anything else is to draw near to Christ to humble yourself before him, to get into his word and to hear him speak to you through his spirit and his word, to to speak to him in prayer, to just be silent with him, that the Lord who would be Lord of your life will indeed be Lord of your heart. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us Would you help us to draw near to you? Would you help us to see that the things that we give ourselves to each and every day, the trappings of this world, the things that that make us look so much more like the world than distinct from it, the things that we would look to as though they would give us ultimate meaning and value in life, Lord, that these things are of no consequence in the scale of eternity, that they are as dust compared to the eternal weight of glory that is being stored up for us. And would you, O God, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, that the things of earth might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.